As human beings created in God's image, we are hardwired for justice. I, a couple months ago, I used the example of bad drivers, right, to explain how we love it if annoying or dangerous drivers get caught red-handed, right? Let me use a different example today to, to show us this fact. How many of you are fans of some sport? Hockey, football, baseball, soccer, whatever, right? You like a sport? How do you feel when a terrible call is made in a sporting event? When a referee or an official or an umpire just makes an awful call. Especially, how do you feel if it goes against your team? Angry? Furious? Cheated? You start yelling at the TV screen? (laughs) How many uh, Montreal Canadiens fans are here? Good, not too many of you. (laughs) You know how us Senator fans felt last spring when we played Montreal in the playoffs? And we had one of our good goals disallowed because of a quick whistle that definitely cost us a chance of the game, if not the series. I was so disgusted, I questioned why I liked sports at all. <laughs> Rethinking my life. <laughs> if you're a Sense fan, I'm sure, uh, if you're not a Sense fan, I'm still sure that you can probably relate to this feeling of one of your favorite teams just getting hosed at some point by a blown call. I don't know if there's anything on earth so trivial that gets us so worked up. If you're not a sports fan at all, how like just think of a time when someone cheated in a game that you played, maybe a board game or something. It's the same type of feeling, similar that when we feel cheated out of something. And what rises up in us in these moments is an inherent sense of justice. A deep desire for justice to be done and a furious frustration when it's not done. We are hardwired for justice. But this often comes out in things not nearly as trivial as sports. Because our world is filled with all kinds of unfair and uncalled for injustice. Wickedness succeeding, perhaps ruling, while seemingly good people suffer, rot, Evil abuse that has happened in homes, schools, even churches, worldwide. Unspeakable pandemics of disease. Pervasive disasters all over the place. AIDS, earthquakes, famines, poverty, terrorism, typhoons, war, refugees fleeing unjust regimes. We wonder, where is the justice? Where is our supposedly just God in these moments? This has been a recurring question in the book of Job, if you've been with us through our journey through it. It really tells the story of a man who experienced more injustice than any of us ever have. But it's been amazing to see how even in the middle of actually questioning God's justice, Job still clung to the God of justice as his only hope. 
which gives us, I believe, a, a model of how we can respond to the evil days we find ourselves in now. We'll see this again today. If you would, take a Bible and turn with me to Job 27. If you're using one of the ones that's in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 434. 434, Job 27. We looked at chapter 26 last week, and chapter 26 began a long string of speeches by Job himself. His three friends were finished. They ran out of things to say. And so now Job has begun his final defense which will continue all the way to chapter 31. Last week, his theme was God's power. It's like we only hear a whisper of how powerful God is. We can't fathom his thunder. Today, his theme is going to be, in this passage, God's justice. God's justice. And it's an interesting and it's a tricky passage a bit, so we need God's help to tackle it. Would you please pause before we continue any further and, and pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your son. We pray now as we gather around your word and we study this together, we pray for your grace and your wisdom and your truth. Please speak to us once more. Help us be ready to hear from you, every single one of us. And may our lives be changed because of what we hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ray Ortland says that the message of the book of Job is this. When, not if, God wrecks your life, trust him and hang on, hang on, hang on, whatever others say. Now, we could probably summarize the message in other ways as well, but that's pretty good because it recognizes that God could wreck our lives. For many of us, it's not an if, it's a when. But when he does, the absolute number one thing we must do is trust him. It's very simple, but it's very difficult to do. We must trust God. And we must continue to trust him, desperately hanging on no matter what others say. When you're hurting, let me tell you, you will hear a huge gamut of different things and opinions and ideas from people around you. Some will maybe make things better, and some will only make things worse. Job heard a whole lot of stuff, good and bad, that only made things worse. But he's an exemplary picture of hanging on. Even when all hope seems lost. He hung on and hung on and hung on no matter what others said. And so we come to chapter 27. Job having withstood the barrage of his friend's words and and though he's been broken and despairing, even hopeless at times, we find him here resilient, stubborn, very frustrated with his friends. Job, once again, at the beginning of 27, begins defending himself in a way that would, see, would sound arrogant to us or overconfident if we didn't already know he was, in fact, telling the truth. And God told us so. In the very first verse of the book, it said, There was a man whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, 
one who feared God and turned away from evil. Doesn't mean he was sinless, but whatever sins Job had, he'd been forgiven of them. And the general conduct of his life was righteous. It was repentant and worshipful. God saw him this way. And so, therefore, we should as well. He's basically an example of a true believer and what true believers might go through. Look how Job begins repeating his defense in verse 1. It says, And Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it for me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Now, you might not be able to tell this right away, but these are some really strong words from Job. In verse 2, when he says, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, Job is swearing an extremely solemn oath. He's, in, he's even invoking the name and the nature of the Almighty living God in his oath. Saying, as surely as God lives, there's no higher authority to swear by. As surely as God lives. He's saying the equivalent of our, I swear to God. Which I'd recommend that we never say. It's too strong of an oath. But here, Job is handing his case over to God. He's confident that God will vindicate him. He's confident enough in his case to to swear it. I swear to God. And then he also goes, I swear on my life with every breath of my lungs. Verse 3, as long as my breath is in me. As long as the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. So as long as I live, I will never give in and admit to something that is untrue. Because if Job did what his friends were urging him to do, he'd be lying. Verse 5, Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. He hadn't sinned in the ways that they had accused him of sinning. He hadn't, he hadn't brought these terrible sufferings on himself. And because of his integrity, he couldn't bring himself to lie, to perjure himself. Far be it for me to say that you are right. That far be it for me was a Hebrew way to call God's judgment down on himself if he were ever proven to be wrong. He's essentially saying very seriously, I'll be damned if I ever can see that your arguments are right. Strong words. So he rightfully reaffirms, verse 6, I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. He had a clear conscience. He held fast to that. Imagine going for a hike through the mountains with a good friend of yours. Okay, and you're having a great time, hiking along trails, seeing God's creation, and all of a sudden your friend's 
foot trips and they slip over the edge of a cliff. And you immediately fall to the ground, reach out your arm, and grab them by the arm. Okay, you know, the types of scenes you see in movies, as if that's realistic. But imagine yourself doing that, being the hero, grabbing their arm, holding them over the edge of this cliff. Are you ever letting go of them? Not in your life. Right? Their life depends on it. You're not letting go until you can pull them back up. That's a picture of holding fast and not letting go. Something that Job was doing with his integrity. He believed that he was right before God and his life depended on that being true. So he clung on, not letting go of his trust that God had saved him and would again. Now, I'm not a fan of giving people false assurance of faith or arrogantly boasting about our faith. However, if you have truly been saved by God, you have repented of your sins, and you have believed in Christ as your Savior, and you you trust in Him alone for your salvation, don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. Okay? If God has cleansed you from your sins by his blood, and he's cleansed your conscience, then hold fast to the righteousness that is given you in Christ. Don't let others, whether other people or devils or yourself, make you doubt your salvation. Because our righteousness is bought with blood, and it is sealed by spirit. It's eternally secure. Again, trust God and hold on, hold on, hold on, whatever others say. This is what Job was doing. However, you can tell it, it definitely wasn't easy to do. Do you notice what Job said back in verse 2? Almost in passing, he said, as God lives who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. Job felt that God had taken away his right or denied him justice, turning him bitter. And the point of these first few verses was simply to show Job defending his righteousness. But they also reveal a deeper truth, a deeper point which can apply equally to us today. And that's this. The living God sometimes takes temporary justice away from the righteous. Okay? Sometimes God withholds justice on a temporary basis from his people. The living God sometimes takes justice, temporary justice, away from righteous people. And by temporary justice, I'm just referring to short-term or immediate justice. And that could be a long time, but temporary. I emphasize the living God here for a reason. The living God. Because as Job makes his oath on God's life, he is stating a surety, a firm belief. And everything that follows, really in this whole chapter, is shaped by the fact that God lives. Those were his first words. As God lives. Now, think about it. Many people would look at a life like Job's, where everything is just totally falling apart, And they conclude that either God doesn't live or that God doesn't care. 
Because surely God wouldn't let someone he loves suffer like that. But Job experienced these sufferings firsthand, and he came to a radically different conclusion. As he affirmed back in chapter 19 as well, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. See, suffering doesn't disprove God's existence or love. Sometimes it can actually prove it. As God purposefully sends people through trials. Job trusted that God did live and thus was active in the world around him. Somehow, God still cared about miserable little Job. He was even giving him the breath in his nostrils and lungs. Did you see that? Verse 2, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. God was providing his every breath. But this is a a sobering reality. In this world, justice can be taken away from God's people. Sometimes we will be hurt. Sometimes we'll be abused, sick, damaged, through no fault of our own. Sometimes people may unkindly make fun of us with ridicule mockery. Sometimes we may unfairly lose something or someone that we care about. Do you know that more Christians are persecuted today than in any any age of church history? Do they deserve their imprisonments and beatings and executions? And yet, God lives. You may feel like God has taken away your right, yet he lives. Are you really okay with God giving and taking away? You sing it. Are you okay with it? He is infinitely wiser and stronger than us. He is living and active in our lives. And he's up to something. Even when we can't understand. God sometimes takes away our perceived rights to fairness and and justice for now. And we must admit this is reality. Okay? But... We shouldn't only do that. We shouldn't stop there. Job doesn't. Even as he somewhat complained about what God did, Job also goes on to reaffirm his trust in God by handing his case over to God, staking everything on God's life and character. Francis Anderson, one scholar, explains it this way. says, Job is not shaking his fist at God. By his solemn gesture, he stakes everything on a justice beyond this injustice. Yes, his his circumstances were pretty unjust. Any of us can admit that. But there was a justice beyond the injustice. And that's the other truth that will come out clearly in the rest of this chapter. The living God sometimes takes temporary justice away from the righteous. But 
the Almighty God will always bring true justice to everyone. God will eventually bring about his justice to everyone, guaranteed. The Almighty God will always bring true justice to everyone. You can count on it. It may not look exactly like we'd hope it to look, or we expect it to look. But, because we got, we got really distorted views of justice and fairness as humans. But God doesn't, and he's perfectly just, and we can trust that his justice will be perfect. The rest of this chapter is basically made up of a prayer and then a warning. First, Joe makes a prayer that God would bring justice against his enemies. Look in verse 7. It says, Let my enemy be as the wicked, and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? Now question, who are Job's enemies that he speaks of here? actually has to be his friends, doesn't it? So-called friends, I should say. By this point in the book, Job's three friends have totally betrayed him. Totally betrayed him. They didn't comfort him. They didn't strengthen him or lift him up or help him. Instead, they just heaped judgment and condemnation and guilt on top of him. If Job's tone sounds harsh to you, remember what his friends have told him recently, okay? They told him that he was such a terrible sinner that he deserved worse. They called Job ignorant and stupid, an arrogant blowhard. They blamed Job for being abominable, corrupt, and unjust. Their words... They accused him of not fearing God, not worshiping God, hindering faith. They asked, is not Job's evil abundant? Is there no end to his sin? And they charged him with being exacting and cruel and tyrannical and abusive. They have not been kind or gracious or merciful or understanding at all. So they rose up against Job unfairly. So it's entirely understandable that Job would pray this. They were no longer his friends. Let my enemy be as the wicked and let him who rises up against me he is the unrighteous. He basically asked God to make it so he and his enemies can trade places, switch places, and that they would receive the punishment for the crimes that they wrongfully charged him with. Like, let my hater be treated as the wicked person that he untruthfully says I am. He wishes his opponents could feel as hopeless as he had felt. Verse 8, for what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? At a home with three young children, my wife and I are often woken up by crying in the night. 
or I should say, my wife is often woken up by crying in the night. And it, usually I sleep right through it and then feel guilty of later that I didn't wake up. But I'll tell you, mothers, once they become mothers, also become superheroes. My wife has developed some crazy spidey senses. She could sleep through many different things with no problem. But if a baby makes as much as a whimper with doors shut between us, she snaps wide awake. And when we, or usually she, hears a kid crying, we know something's wrong. Right? Maybe a bad dream full diaper, someone's thirsty or sick. So we answer their cries by getting up and doing our nightly superhero work. For kids, it's comforting to know that someone is there to answer our cries. And the same goes for believers. It's comforting to know that someone is there to answer our cries. But the wicked have no such assurance. And Job explains this here. It's like once the wicked die, their hope expires and God won't help them. Verse 8, for what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Now Job's prayer was that God's justice would come to those who unjustly Heard him, And it wasn't wrong for Job to pray this as long as he left it in God's hands. It's important to note, as we've gone through this book, how often Job prayed in his speeches while his friends never did. Did you notice that? Not once did we hear them pray. Which adds weight to verse 10. Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? No, not likely. Let me warn and encourage all of you. Eventually, we will run out of time to call upon God and take delight in him. But you haven't yet. You haven't yet. And I urge you in the words of Isaiah the prophet, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He is near to you now. And he showed that he wanted to be sought and found by us when he came and sought and found us in Jesus. While we were all still deep, dead in our sins, Jesus came to earth form of a little baby. This is why we celebrate Christmas. And when that baby grew up, he bled and died for our sins, paying our penalty, and then rose again, victorious over sin and death and hell. And now the implication for us is an echo of Job 27, as well as Joel 2.32, which prophesied, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you call on the name 
of the Lord, believing in your heart that Jesus lives, you will be saved. Stake your life on that hope. It's the only hope that will never disappoint. Job was staking his life on the belief that God lived and would vindicate him one day. And if his prayers were answered, his three friends that were sitting around him would be judged by God. Therefore, Job wants to warn them one final time that they're in terrible danger. Look in verse 11. It's like, I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? For many chapters now, the friends have tried to instruct Job. Now the roles are reversed. Since their teachings proved worthless and vain, it says here, Job takes the role of the teacher to instruct them. But notice what he wants to teach them about. Verse 11, I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Again, Job or his sufferings are not the point of this book. God is. Job wants to teach them concerning the hand of God, what God is truly like, how he acts, how he relates to people. And this is why the two main points I shared with you today focus on God, not Job, or not us, and his justice. Of course, Job doesn't know everything either. He's admitted as much many times. He doesn't know all. But he obviously does know better than his friends. So what does he want to teach them about God? Well, first, that God's judgment does come. Like I said, the Almighty God will always bring true justice to everyone. The righteous can take hope in that truth, and the wicked should take heed. Now, this is where this passage gets a bit confusing. Because over the last 11 verses, Job says a lot of things that sound quite similar to what his friends told him earlier. It almost sounds like he's come around to their viewpoint. That now he agrees with them. Yes, the wicked are judged fiercely by God. Earlier, Job had claimed that sometimes the wicked inexplicably prosper on earth. But now it almost seems like he contradicts that claim. However, I don't believe that this is the case. He's not agreeing with them or contradicting himself because the contexts are extremely different. Christopher Ash explains that while it is true that the spine-chilling description of the fate of the wicked has a striking number of points of contact with similar descriptions in the speeches of the comforters, the context is different. They describe the torments of the wicked because these sufferings parallel Job's sufferings, and they thus imply that he is wicked. He describes them because this terrible fate is what will befall his friends if they continue to accuse and malign him. Now, earlier in this chapter and before, Job focused on the temporary withholding of justice. This is true. But this was denied... By his friends. Now, 
Job focuses on the eventual coming of true justice. This is also true. And this was never denied by Job. This chapter really provides balance to Job's earlier words. Yes, the wicked do prosper sometimes, but eventually they will also be judged. We'll all be judged before the throne of Christ. Before, Job was mostly defending himself. Now he's warning others. Verse 13. This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. This is what's coming to oppressors. This verse has been paraphrased. I'm about to describe the fate that the Almighty God will allocate to those who wickedly oppress the righteous. What will their inheritance be, their heritage? It's downright tragic. Look again. This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive him, the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moths, like a booth that a watchman makes. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his, his eyes and his wealth is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. You might still think this sounds unrealistic because we've seen otherwise. But have you really? Remember what Job said back in verse 8 said, for what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? So this is all about what happens once the wicked person dies. Not necessarily before. And the hope of the godless is entirely in this life, not the next. Job still readily admits here, you can see it, the wicked may seem quite prosperous and successful now. In verse 14, his children are multiplied. In verse 16, he heaps up silver and clothing in huge mass amounts. In verse 18, he builds his house diligently. In verse 19, he goes to bed rich and wealthy. But have you ever really seen a wicked person prosper after death? This reminds me of the parable that Jesus told in Luke 12 about the rich man who kept building bigger barns to store all his wealth that he kept accumulating. He's very successful, very happy, very comfortable in his life. And he said, Luke 12, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, 
This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Once a godless person's body dies, it's all over for them. They didn't prepare for eternity. Their children and their grandchildren may multiply. Their riches may as well. Sometimes for many, many years. And it seems to us like God just isn't going to judge them. But eventually death comes to every last one of them. And as is described here, is some by the sword or famine or pestilence or natural disasters. And then we all know what comes after death. Ultimately, as verse 18 says, their house proves to be no better than a moth's cocoon or a flimsy shack. The earthly security of God's opponents proves to be extremely fragile. The main picture Job uses at the end of the chapter, in verse 20 to 23, is one of a violent tornado, just ripping the wicked man's life to shreds as he watches and then flees in terror. The main point we should see in these verses is this. When God's justice comes, it will be swift, sure, terrible, terrifying, and complete. Anyone who opposes Christ needs to take heed of this warning. And that might include you. It definitely includes anyone who opposes God's true followers. Because if people ridicule or mock or persecute us, they're really doing it to Jesus. And you can take heart. One day the tables will turn. Either at death or as Christ returns. This doesn't mean that we should get cocky and arrogant. <laughs> You're going to burn. It does mean we need to get urgent about evangelism. Warning and urging others towards Christ. It's fascinating. Job's prayer is eventually answered in chapter 42 by him being told to pray for his friends and them being given forgiveness. God's grace is available to anyone. But I'm serious, those who have been declared righteous by God should take heart now. Because this means that ISIS won't always wreak such terror and destruction. This means, these truths mean that the human traffickers and slave traders and child abusers won't always prosper. This means that a godless naturalistic society won't always prevail. This means that Satan and his demons won't always be able to run rampant. This means that meaningless and unjust wars won't keep on destroying lives. A better day is coming when justice is restored. 
So take hope. Take heart. Look ahead. When the wicked are finally judged, the righteous, those saved by grace through faith, will be vindicated and rewarded by God. Job merely hints at this future reality. In verse 16, he said, Though the wicked heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. Proverbs 13.22 put it this way, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Jesus put it this way, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And the very end of the book puts it this way. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city of heaven by the gates. May we wash our robes in Christ's blood and cry out to him day and night. Because where is God when injustice reigns? He is living, he is almighty, and he's coming back. Heavenly Father, we are so in need of you. We're so fallen and guilty and wicked without you. Every one of us deserves these things that have been written about here. And yet you say that because of Christ, we can be forgiven. We can be redeemed and we can be restored. And that you will bring justice one day. We rest on that promise. We cling to that hope. And we look forward to when you come again. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.